0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 11 of the Rational Policy Podcast. This is your host Mike Cote speaking. Thank you so much for joining me today. This episode is going to be another one of our monthly foreign telegrams in which I bounce around the world, discuss some of the most important stories of the past month in foreign policy and international relations. This month, February 2023, It's a short month, but it doesn't mean there's been any lack of international goings-on. We're going to be touching on three different stories, two which have really been all over the news, and one which has definitely flown under the radar but does show a lot in terms of what American foreign policy needs to be like going forward. Our first story is going to be the thing that was really on everyone's mind at the beginning of this month, especially around the time of the Super Bowl, balloons. Yes, we're going to be talking about the Chinese spy balloon saga, which uh, happened a few weeks ago. I wrote a bit about it. Uh, You can check out that article over at the National Interest. But what I'm going to be talking about, uh, giving a little bit of an overview as to what happened, most people probably know at this point, but specifically talk about what it means going forward and how our response was a bit of a failure the second story we'll be touching on today is the devastating series of earthquakes in turkey and syria we'll be discussing what happened uh, what we can do about it and really the role of the united states when it comes to providing disaster relief abroad finally the last story we'll be touching on in this episode of the rational policy podcast are military exercises going on in South Africa. These are exercises that involved both Russia and China, as well as South Africa, obviously. And it shows quite a bit about the presence of our international foes on the world stage. Uh, It shows really what we're going to be having to contend with in the future. So we're going to have a brief break, and then we'll be stepping into our first topic, the balloons. Welcome back, everybody. What we'll be doing now is discussing the first of our topics for this Foreign Telegram for February 2023, the saga of the balloons. This really was the biggest foreign policy Uh, or international affairs story of this month thus far, barring, of course, the year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, which I'll touch on very much uh, just a little bit at the end of the podcast. But the biggest story for most of February was this saga of the Chinese spy balloon. You probably heard about it. Maybe, depending on where you lived, you actually saw it. Uh, I was not lucky enough to be able to uh, pinpoint the extremely large Multiple bus length spy balloon in the sky uh, living up here in New Jersey. But if you're down in the Carolinas or over the center of the country or especially over Montana, you may have seen it. This was really the biggest story uh, of the month. Generally, if there's something like this that captures the attention of the entire nation for several days, it's worth dwelling on and it's something that ends up being important. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's something silly like that balloon boy story from over a decade ago i guess now wow it's longer than i thought Uh, but something like this that is an actual foreign policy story if it gets as much press and as much play as it does as it did then that is something that really is worth taking a second look at and that's what we're really going to be doing uh, in this segment if you don't know what happened basically a chinese communist party spy balloon uh, they did deny this and we'll get to that in a moment but it was a spy balloon and it essentially floated over almost the entirety of the north american continent it crossed into the aleutian islands about a week before it crossed into the continental united states in between it crossed over much of alaska loitered over sections of canada uh, and then crossed into the u.s in montana there it lingered over several important military sites Uh, including Air Force bases where we house nuclear deterrence. After that, it floated over much of the rest of the Midwest, slowly taking its time over a course of several days and eventually crossing over into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, I believe in South Carolina. That point, uh, what happened was the U.S. government sent out some F-22s and shot it down. They've been in the process of recovering the craft now, trying to piece together whatever information they can. But what happened, this balloon, you think of a balloon, you're thinking of, I don't know, a hot air balloon maybe? This was much, much larger. Uh, There's actually recently been a picture that has come out uh, on social media. It's a photograph, a selfie photograph actually, which is kind of cool, that a U-2 spy plane pilot took uh, when he flew over the balloon. In that image, you can see that it's very, very large um, air bladders that were there and able to be inflated and deflated. And below that hung a, an extremely large thing that almost looked like a satellite. Basically, all these sensors and various uh, mechanical and electronic devices, and extremely large solar panels to power it all. Uh, the solar panels were quite large as I said, and that's something that means that the devices that were on board probably used a lot of energy. And we'll talk about what those devices could have been coming up. The whole thing was covered in sensors. Uh, It was really able to freely maneuver as well. So it could increase and decrease its height. Uh, It could loiter over areas. Uh, So it was not just driven along by the wind currents. Initially, Beijing said this was a commercial balloon, said they didn't understand how it got to where it was, uh, and it was an error or a mistake. This was something that was pretty much immediately debunked by the federal government, thankfully. They were proactive in saying that this was indeed a CCP spy balloon, at least when it was noticed by people on the ground. And therein lies one of the big problems here the response. This was only acknowledged about a week after it crossed into American airspace in Alaska. And it was only acknowledged because a photographer from the Billings, Montana local newspaper was able to use uh, a long lens and get some photographs of the balloon as it was over Montana, kind of just hanging out. And they published those photos in the newspaper. And that was the first time that the federal government acknowledged or did anything at all about this balloon and when i say they did something they didn't do anything they acknowledged it yes they indeed did that say that this was there although that was a pretty low bar given that it was visible with the naked eye from the ground but they basically ignored it for the rest of the time that it was flying over the united states there were several days after it was first acknowledged where nothing happened Essentially, the Biden administration would be very cagey about what was happening. They refused to respond to various inquiries and allowed this balloon to float over the continental United States, going over many important military bases, until it got over the ocean when they shot it down. And of course, the moment they shot it down, they claimed victory, said, you know, this is a great thing. We were able to take down this balloon, blah, 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 blah. And of course, they made excuses as to why they couldn't have shot it down earlier, saying that it may have endangered American lives or property on the ground since it was so large. And so they had to wait till it was over the sea to do it. In the meantime, really the only consequence of this action was that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken canceled or postponed a trip to China to meet with uh, Xi Jinping. And this was essentially the only response until they shot down the craft. It was super weak. Uh, that was something that was essentially looked at from across the aisle as what is the biden administration doing why are they allowing this balloon which clearly is intended to conduct surveillance on the continental united states our homeland why do they let it just transit the entire country without doing anything about it it's not like they were constantly flying planes next to it to monitor it it's not like they attempted to shoot it down earlier they simply just waited until it was over the Atlantic before they shot it down. And, you know, as I said before, their rationale, they laid it out. You know, it was too dangerous to shoot it down over, over land. Although that doesn't really make sense given, first of all, the fact that they saw it in the Aleutian Islands, which are, you know, very, very sparsely populated islands. It may have been harder to recover in the Bering Sea. That's understandable. But also it was over much of Alaska, it was over Canada, it was over Montana, North Dakota, things like that. These are not exactly heavily populated areas. And as large as the debris field would be, it wouldn't be so large as to ensure that it would damage either lives or property of Americans. So the fact that it wasn't shut down was really, really uh, absurd to me and to many other geopolitical observers. It was especially absurd in the light of the actions which the Biden administration took in the following weeks. In those following weeks, we saw a barrage of shootdowns of various craft, essentially unidentified flying objects. No, not aliens, as much as you may like that. Probably just commercial uh, balloons. One of them was seemed like it was a hobbyist balloon, and it was shot down, uh, again, by a Sidewinder missile. So instead of getting a lot of bang for our buck... We paid a lot of buck for one bang. It was a $400,000 missile that blew up a $200 hobbyist balloon. So this was something that really was overkill in the most uh, direct sense of the word. We shot down these various things that were flying over either Alaska, like Huron, other parts of the United States, and essentially didn't say anything about them for several days, just that we shot these things down. We aren't even recovering some of them, so it's really not something that uh, the Biden administration has done a good job of, and this is something where it is important to reassure the public. Obviously, anytime there is a foreign antagonist's surveillance craft over your nation that is visible with the naked eye, that's a problem, especially for a country as powerful as the United States. Not being able to police our own airspace Uh, Or, if we're choosing not to police our own airspace, not being able to hide that fact successfully from the citizenry uh, is really showing the incompetence of the administration. The radical swings from either not shooting anything down or shooting everything possible down makes us look chaotic, makes us look confused, and as I said, it makes us look weak. The Biden administration also trotted out the line that several of these spy balloons were noticed over the united states during the trump administration and nothing was said consequently several people from the trump administration including those who currently do not at all get along with the man including uh, former national security advisor john bolton have said they saw nothing of that at all during their time in the administration Uh, apparently actually these things may have happened but nobody was notified at the time So honestly, the fact that the Biden administration was trotting this out as some sort of whataboutism really does reek of, pardon my French, ass-covering. It's not something that you want to see. It really does look like partisan political deflection when you're really talking about something that truly is uh, a threat to the United States and something that should be discussed and described in detail by our commander-in-chief. And President Biden has been curiously and conspicuously absent when it comes to this issue. The State of the Union address was only a few days after the initial shootdown of the balloon, and he maybe said one or two lines about it in the entire address. This was not something that it seems like Joe Biden really cared too much about. And given the fact that it was an incursion into American airspace by a hostile foreign power, that is a bit concerning the administration has also discussed uh, the idea that this balloon was being watched the entire time since it left china and if that is the case it's even more absurd given that they would have known exactly where it was going what it was doing at all times apparently the biden administration said that you know we're jamming their sensors they're not able to see anything I am not very uh, sanguine about that possibility. I am much more interested in the fact that we knew where this balloon was, and we chose to do nothing about it. Of course, that means we probably have surveillance assets over the sky in China at any given time. I don't doubt that at all. But when this becomes so obvious, it cannot be allowed to continue given the information that we knew where this balloon was coming from out of China uh, there has been a story floated I believe it was in the Washington Post that was discussing the fact that this balloon was blown off course initially it was intended to surveil Guam uh, an American territory in the Pacific there are two things about that story one that makes it fairly unbelievable and the second that makes it if true even more concerning So let's go about what makes it pretty unbelievable it does not make any sense given how this balloon was able to loiter how it was able to either use or not use certain wind currents how it was able to change its height essentially at will this is not something that would have easily blown off course especially not as far off course from guam as the aleutian islands and alaska and montana are if you look at a map of the world and you see guam And you see the aleutian islands it would take a hell of a gust to push it all the way there out of course that does not seem like something that happened and given the controllability that uh, beijing seems to have had from this object it does not seem as though uh, an accident is likely in this case it also deliberately flew over several sensitive sites as i mentioned and this is not something that would really make sense to me if it was merely accidentally blown off course. Second, if it was surveilling Guam, if that was the initial purpose of this balloon, and it's what it was trying to do in the first place, that's just as, if not more concerning, than as if it was intended to surveil the continental United States. Let's explain that, because it is a bit counterintuitive. You know, we don't really think too much about Guam here in the US, but someone flying over nuclear missile silos in Montana obviously, is very distressing. No matter how distressing that is, it is unlikely that nuclear silos or air force bases in the continental United States, especially that far in the center of the United States, would be a target in anything other than an all-out nuclear conflict, which, despite the uh, pleas of the people who are isolationists, is not in the cards. At least not right now. But Guam, which is part of the island chain, which basically hems in uh, various Asian powers into the western Pacific, uh, that's where Guam is. Another island right in that area is a little island known as Taiwan. Obviously, this is a major, major target for Beijing. China has been looking to forcibly reincorporate Taiwan into mainland china uh, for years now and president xi jinping uh, or excuse me totalitarian dictator xi jinping he has basically made this a major major plan uh, and something that he intends to accomplish during his time as leader of the communist party of china guam is the site of major american military bases in the region It is an American territory, so it is part of the United States. And it is a territory that is directly in the line of fire for China. It is exactly where we would be sending troops, staging logistics, if we were to try to deter or prevent or beat back a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And as such, in many war games that uh, the U.S. government and various private actors have carried out, Guam would very much likely be the target of a preemptive first strike by China to take out American assets in the region and thus make the invasion of Taiwan a fait accompli. So for me, seeing that Beijing is trying to do detailed surveillance of Guam, pointing out where our various military assets are, uh, assessing wind conditions and things like that, it shows to me, if that is indeed the goal of this balloon, that China is quite serious about moving on Taiwan. And as we've heard from various people in the administration, including in the Air Force, this may be happening in the next few years. So obviously, it does bear mentioning and it does bear paying attention to. Some people are asking the question why would someone use a balloon to do surveillance? A super old technology something that's been around since the 1700s when we have satellites why send up even an unmanned balloon when they can put something in space that is essentially undetectable and can take high resolution photographs of pretty much everything they want well balloons with their ability to linger as well as their uh, existence within the atmosphere can capture important sensory information that satellites at this stage of the game may not be able to. They can get signals intelligence, so intercepting electronic communications, radio waves, various signals like that. They can also get weather data, which is incredibly important for missile targeting. Uh, As I said, I don't think that's as big of a deal with respect to places like Montana, but with Guam, that is absolutely a big deal. Uh, being able to get atmospheric conditions allows for more precise targeting of ballistic missiles, which, in any sort of preemptive strike, would be quite important to have that detailed information. And finally, one of the things that you can put in a balloon, especially now as the technology has advanced quite a bit, is what's called LIDAR. You may have heard of this if you're at all into archaeology, uh, as I am, or history. You may have seen these amazing i you call them photographs they're kind of like x-rays of the ground and you'll see them you'll see basically a picture of the mayan jungle the guatemalan jungle right and it's all trees and then all of a sudden they strip away the top layer of trees digitally and you can see the mayan ruins the pyramids the temples uh the sports courts the courtyards all of these things that are just buried under deep deep layers of jungle and that's, allowed, that's basically something that allows you to see underneath brush, underneath ground, uh, potentially ground-penetrating radar. And this is something that is not only important for archaeology, it's incredibly important for surveillance. A lot of American nuclear assets, uh, secret military installations, bases, things like that, are housed underground. Not just in the United States. These sorts of things are all over the place. Obviously, trying to build resilience, you want to include as much as you can out of the way of potential missile targeting or destruction. And being underground has always historically been something that has been very protective of the things that need to be protected. We've had for a while now things like bunker buster JDAM bombs that essentially can penetrate the ground before they explode. And these were used in Afghanistan to destroy uh, terrorist targets, but they could also be used to destroy underground uh, equipment and other sorts of things like missile silos or research laboratories. The problem is, it does, you don't necessarily know where those things are just based on satellite photographs. You do when you use LIDAR. And obviously that is something that needs to be done in the upper atmosphere or closer, not through space. So what's the takeaway from these balloons? China is probing our defenses. And they're probing our response. And we failed both of those tests. Not only did we allow a noticeable known Chinese spy balloon to enter the continental United States, we allowed it to loiter over several important military installations. We allowed it to be seen by civilians with the naked eye from the ground And we essentially allowed it to transit our entire country totally unmolested until it accomplished its mission and reached the Atlantic Ocean. This is unacceptable. This was a test that we failed miserably. And I, for one, am not looking forward to finding out what the result of that test is in terms of our next assessment. And in just a moment, we'll be touching on our second topic, the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. And we're back. Thank you again for coming back and joining us. Uh, The second topic on today's Foreign Telegram is the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. This was something that happened a few weeks ago. Uh, Absolutely catastrophic levels of destruction after a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, uh, epicentered in southern Turkey, right around the Syrian borderlands. Uh, This was a major, major earthquake. 7.8 is quite, quite destructive on the Richter scale. And unfortunately, this is an area that doesn't exactly have the best infrastructure or the best uh, access to resources and recovery. The area is already struggling and has been struggling for over a decade now with the impact of the syrian civil war obviously syria has been largely destroyed by that war in various conflicts when the russians were involved syrians by themselves when isis was involved it's a mess Uh, and syria really does not need any more destruction unfortunately that is exactly what they got as did southern turkey one of the major places where syrian refugees have fled to over the past decade as of a few days ago, over 40,000 people have been declared dead, largely in building collapses. Part of the problem with the buildings is that there are lack of good building standards. And oftentimes in countries like Syria and Turkey, local officials who monitor construction sites are easily bribable, uh, and would be happy to overlook you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's for the right price. Normally, that wouldn't be too big of a deal, but unfortunately, when something like this happens, it ends up leading to far more death and destruction than is otherwise necessary. There has been not the best response, especially from the Turkish government, uh, and it could impact Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish leader, uh, some would consider him a dictator, myself included, at the upcoming national elections. He's already been having some issues obviously related to some of this authoritarian overreach but this could really be a much bigger impact given how tangible and concrete it is if someone that's in charge doesn't do what needs to get done to rescue people who are at imminent risk of death that tends to really reduce their popularity in the minds of the citizenry As I said, Turkey is not exactly a fully free country, despite the fact that they are an American ally. But they do have elections, and Erdogan could possibly lose. So that is something to think about with respect to this. Something else to think about is really just how we respond. The international community has done a fairly good job in terms of surging resources and relief and aid to the affected areas, including in Syria where there still is a risk of conflict, some of this photos of these destruction is just absolutely horrifying. Uh, you can see pictures online of roads which have been shifted, you know, several meters uh, entirely, because the earth really did just come apart and come back together again, uh, and whole areas were moved, you know, yards and yards away. You'll see various buildings totally destroyed, flattened, crumpled including many which fell apart days after the initial quake and the aftershocks were finished. Unfortunately, more recently in the past week or so, another earthquake has hit pretty much the same area. Not as strongly, but obviously it's something that you don't want to have happen and pretty much puts the end to any and all efforts at rescue. This is truly a devastating natural disaster. It's one that The world hasn't really faced in in quite some time. Obviously, thinking back, you get earthquakes in Haiti. uh, You've had enormous disasters like the tsunami in, I believe it was 2004, in the Indian Ocean, which killed, I believe, over 200,000 people across Southeast Asia. These are things where we don't really know exactly how to respond if you're not actually having an international system. You know, a country like Thailand back in 2004 didn't have resources to totally respond and recover from such an immense disaster. Syria today, and even Turkey, don't really have the resources to be able to rebuild, recover, and surge the aid as fast as it needs to get there, and as uh, expertise as the people that need to be uh, surged there to help people out. This is something that American and international aid, thankfully, is quite good at. It's been surging recently, uh, especially in the first few days after the devastating quake. I wrote a piece uh, on this topic over at The Federalist. I'll include that in the links uh, in the piece below. But it basically argued for using American funds and American expertise uh, not only as the moral thing to do, but as something within our national interests. Disaster relief is something that the U.S. is very good at, unfortunately, in some ways. We deal with pretty much every natural disaster under the sun, given how large and expansive our territory is. We have hurricanes, we have typhoons, we have earthquakes, we've had volcanoes, we have floods, we have tornadoes, wildfires, you name it, blizzards, we've got it all of it. And given our federalist system and the fact that there is expertise developed in disaster recovery and relief at so many different levels, the U.S. really is quite uniquely equipped to deal with these sorts of disasters. As such, using our expertise and our money to be able to help nations who are recovering directly in the aftermath of natural catastrophes like this really does help our national interests well how do you get from a to b there the answer is soft power soft power is a concept that was uh, described by the believe harvard political scientist joseph nye jr he's written several books on the topic but basically if you think about things you have hard power which is usually military power coercive power things like that and then you have soft power which is essentially taking that hard edge and trying to uh, get others to work within your interests in a way that is using more of the carrot than the stick. So, for instance, soft power can be things like cultural attraction, you know, the American way of life, the American dream, the ability for people across the world to look at us and see, oh, that's a place where I'd like to be. That's soft power. So is international penetration of American corporations, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, things like that, that brings people into the American cultural orbit. Same thing with Hollywood. Hollywood is a major, major source of American soft power, especially in the past, as we were much more confident about exporting American ideas uh, instead of just trying to reach the lowest common denominator and not offend anybody. Disaster Relief fits right into the soft power strategy. What it does is it helps people out in a home country, and by helping them and showing them that we've got their backs and we're willing to assist in a time of catastrophe, that builds positive feelings in the populace about the United States of America. And that's what we're trying to do. Even if it's not instrumentally used or cynically used and saying, well, you know, we're helping you with this, this disaster, now you have to do what we want. What it is is saying, we're gonna help you with this disaster, and that's it. But that sort of aid and that sort of assistance does tend to stick with a country for quite some time. As an example from coming the other way around, the United States often doesn't really get international aid. Uh we don't to need that sort of help from other countries given how well off we are but I remember as someone who grew up in New York and New Jersey uh, right around New York City I do remember after September 11th 2001 various countries from around the world surged aid workers and help to help us recover from the terrorist attacks of that horrifying day that is something that people in this area especially didn't forget uh, that's something that is still meaningful to many, especially those who are affected by that tragedy. And this is something that, when it comes to natural disasters, we can do the same thing for others abroad. And as I said, not only is it the right thing to do, the just and moral thing to do, it is something that in the long run would benefit our interests. In a country like Turkey, that is an official American ally, which we rely on very heavily in many different ways, Uh, but also is a country that has tended to not always work in our interests building a positive rapport with the general population really could in the long run be very very helpful to american interests turkey is a very very important country geographically and strategically it sits across the exit to the black sea which obviously is very important during this uh, russia-ukraine war it also really is the key and the gateway to much of the middle east American bases have been used there uh, for various missions that we've conducted in that crucial region of the world. Unfortunately, Turkey has not always been the most helpful when it comes to allowing American basing on its territory. And more recently, with the potential accession of Sweden and Finland to the NATO alliance, of which Turkey is a part, Turkey has put some roadblocks in the way of those two countries joining the alliance. And again, I'm not saying this should be used cynically or instrumentally to try to get Turkey to do what we want, but I do think it adds to our toolbox of the ability to exert pressure and to influence the population and the government of Turkey to act more within our interests. So this is something that we should continue doing. Disaster relief is really a great thing to do, not only morally, but for our soft power abroad. And so with that, we're giving our prayers, our thoughts to everyone in Turkey and Syria that is affected by this horrible, horrible disaster. We hope the area recovers soon and pray for those lives that have been lost. So in a minute, we'll be touching on our last topic of this foreign telegram, South Africa's recent military exercises with Russia and China. See you in a minute. And welcome back to this third and final segment of this month's Foreign Telegram podcast. The last issue we're going to be touching on is one that's definitely not been covered as much. Probably isn't as important in terms of specifically what is happening, but is quite important in terms of what it signals for the future. And that is the joint military exercises that South Africa is currently undergoing with Russia and China the takeaway from this uh, obviously these are normal joint military exercises the United States carries them out with various other powers as do Russia and China with their friends and allies many people are upset with this sort of thing right now because it basically shows that South Africa is not going to stop uh, Russia from docking or participating in these activities despite the fact of the Ukraine war what this shows overall is far more important than the actual concept or exercise that's being carried out today. What it shows is that American power is no longer absolute, if it ever was. And we need to do a lot better in terms of bringing the global South into the American fold. This has been clear for quite some time. Uh, that the u.s does not hold the whip hand over the entire world like it may have for a short period in the 1990s and early 2000s with respect to the ukraine war as well as china's human rights abuses and genocide of the uyghurs we see that there are many countries across the world often in the developing world also known as the global south the third world people who used to be involved with what's called the non-aligned movement during the cold war which basically was trying to find a middle path in between the Soviet Union and the United States. Oftentimes, that ended up being closer to the Soviet Union than it was to the United States, but that's beside the point. What we're seeing is that we don't have leverage over these countries. They're not just going to do everything that we want, especially in international bodies like the United Nations, where every nation gets an equal say in terms of voting. This is something that Right now may not be too big of an issue, but as we move forward, it's going to be a major, major concern. If there is some sort of larger-scale conflict directly with either China or Russia, the world will split into blocks, whether we like it or not. And right now, the people that we have on our side tend to be more highly developed, but there are fewer of them. They're democratically accountable to their people, which means, unfortunately, oftentimes, that they may not have the stomach for serious conflict. And overall, they're outnumbered by these, you know, larger number of nations in the global South. Right now, we're coasting on the investment of previous generations. And we're becoming increasingly obsessed with our own minor internal quarrels when there's really a new game afoot. We're fighting a culture war, Role playing game. We're cosplaying it's civil war. We're trying to fight internally, do all these things, whether we want to stop woke or be woke. None of that matters in international politics. What matters is the reality of power. And right now, we are letting our power be sapped, be drained, and not be nearly as strong as it needs to be across the world in the various nations where we do need to have an impact and an influence. This is not going to be a century that is contained to one place geopolitically. There's going to be conflict and competition and contrast across the world. Every continent, every ocean, every area, land, air, sea, space. This is what we're going to be dealing with in the 21st century. The challenges are not shrinking. They are growing and expanding. The fight against the Soviet Union, although it never, thankfully, burst into actual hot warfare, was truly a global competition. We tried to constrain and compete against Soviet power on every continent on the planet. This is only going to increase this century, because we're not facing just one hyperpower against us, we're facing two superpowers, one of them being, you know, much more marginalized than the other, obviously. And this is going to require us to think differently. We can't just think in response of, well, how are we going to protect the continental United States? Because we have the Pacific Ocean, we have the Atlantic Ocean, we generally have friends on our borders in Mexico and Canada, but what we need to think about are protecting the American system. This is a broader, broader thing. This is American power and hegemony across the whole world. Essentially, it's a continuation of the British-run world order that was established in the late 19th century where there is largely free trade, uh, sea lanes are open to trade between countries, piracy is clamped down upon, uh, and after World War I, there were very few uh, spheres of influence and things like that. We're trying to get to a world where sovereign nations are able to make sovereign decisions for themselves and their own people, and trade and interact freely on the international stage, buttressed by the rule of law. This is the American system, in a nutshell and our enemies russia china iran smaller players like north korea their want to overturn that they do not want to play by those rules and in that system anymore they've been able to win quite a bit of success internally and domestically by playing in that system china has increased its wealth by quite a bit and decreased its extreme poverty by even more but These countries desire social control, a broader geopolitical footprint, and they don't like playing by the rules. These are things that we're going to have to deal with going forward. And so that means that we can't just focus on protecting our own coastlines and our own homeland. We need to focus on keeping the American system afloat abroad. And one thing that these South Africa exercises bring up that can be a concern in that respect is how China and Russia have been trying to expand their influence in both the Arctic and the Southern Oceans. We see uh, Russia being involved in the Arctic quite a bit. Obviously, it's the country with the longest Arctic border and the most Arctic land. Totally makes sense that Russia would be involved there. They have been militarizing it more than other countries, but China has also been involved in the Arctic. They've sent probes there, they've bought icebreakers. China is nowhere near the Arctic. The only reason that they're involved in the Arctic is both to militarize and to try to dominate it in terms of trade. China and Russia are both also very deeply involved in the Southern Oceans, key transportation corridors around the bottom of our planet. They're trying to get a base at Ushuaia in southern Argentina across from the Falkland Islands, something I wrote a bit about for national interest, and I'll link that in the show notes. And now, with this sort of military exercise uh, with South Africa, they're controlling or having allies or friends uh, in operation both around the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn. So, both Africa and South America. That's very important because, although these may not currently be the most heavily trafficked maritime passageways, as climate change continues... And as uh, global shipping becomes even more important, these will become more important waterways, especially if conflict happens to erupt. One of the things that we can do to try to turn this tide around is things like foreign aid, disaster relief, the soft power I spoke about earlier. But if we're going to be doing those things, we need to actually have a very different approach to what we've had in the past. Since the end of the Cold War, the United States has focused much, much more on promoting progressive ideology abroad than it has on defending American national interests. That was a luxury practice, and we no longer have that luxury. The world of 2023 is extremely different than the world of 1996, and that change really means that we need to adapt and change as well. We are not in the world of unchallenged american dominance anymore and it's been quite some time that that has not been the case we're alienating so many parts of the world through our pushing of progressive ideology especially under the obama and biden administrations oftentimes we've conditioned aid or relations uh, on things like gender equality which again is important but It's not something that we should denigrate our national interests in order to try to push faster and harder than these countries are able to work. Instead of trying to promote uh, LGBTQ populations in sub-Saharan Africa, what we should be doing is try to work with these African countries to give them the information, the development aid that they need to grow their populations, eventually democratize and liberalize even more than they have. And right now, that is something that should be a higher priority than trying to push these progressive policies abroad. The vast majority of the world is not progressive, and that is a huge problem for progressives. But what it doesn't need to be is a huge problem for American foreign policy. We need to work as well as we can with the countries that exist as they are. We may try to shift them, we may try to influence our development, But I think that is much more a tool of soft power than anything else. Showing American culture to be accepting, to be welcoming and open and vibrant, diverse, that's something that can be very helpful in gaining converts to the American way of life. What is not helpful is trying to scold foreign nations for not doing everything the way that we would like to have it done. And if we continue down this path, we will lose opportunities that we could otherwise have to influence nations that are going to be strategically quite important going forward we need to stop focusing on these peripheral issues and really get our eye back on the ball the world can't be made to do things that it does not want to do conservative countries religious countries which again they may not be like western europe or the united states but they do comprise the vast majority of the world they don't want what we want they're not going to become progressive whether we like it or not, at least not in the short term. The problem here is, if we focus on those sorts of efforts, they're not going to succeed. Why? Because we're going to lose the overall geopolitical competition to our rivals. And if you think that progressive ideology would do better under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin, I would suggest you rethink your assumptions. So that's it for today. That is all for this foreign telegram for February 2023. I hope you found it interesting and informative, enjoyable. I hope you learned a little something. If there's something that you would like to hear talked about on this podcast, you can shoot me an email at rationalpolicyblog@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can check me out on Twitter at RATLpolicy. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. I often share articles that I think are interesting And sometimes you can kind of tell what I'm going to say in a Foreign Telegram podcast if you follow my Twitter feed pretty regularly. Also be sure to check out my writing over at rationalpolicy.com. Recently I've had several pieces come out at other outlets including National Review, The National Interest, and The Federalist, as well as Ordinary Times. So be sure to check all those out. I'll link some of those pieces in the show notes, ones that we've spoken about a bit today. Before we leave... I do want to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. This is going to be very brief, but I want to leave this out there. It's been a year since this began, since Russia invaded uh, across broad swaths of, of sovereign Ukrainian territory. Many people, including myself, thought that this was a foregone conclusion, that Russia would beat them within days or weeks. And thank God I was wrong. Ukraine has done an incredible job of being resolute, standing up for itself, and fighting back against the Russian invaders. It has proven itself worthy of nationhood, as well as, to me, worthy of our friendship. So let's hope that a year from today, either this war will be over with Ukraine victorious, or Ukraine will still be holding out and will be in a better position than they are today. That's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Leave us a review if you can on your favorite podcast service. Tell your friends, your family all about us. And be sure to tune in next time for the next Rational Policy Podcast. I am your host, Mike Cote. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.